Well, Merry Christmas, and I hope that you're having a great holiday season so far. Uh, I'm Pastor Joey, and it's a privilege to welcome you here this morning to another holiday weekend, Christmas services here at Stone Community Church. What a, what a joy. Someone asked me if I was ready for the holiday, and, and all I could think about is I've got some things on a bed in one of the spare bedrooms at our house, and there's a towel over it. So that's about how ready I am. And it's been there for um, a couple of weeks. And so I'll just, I guess I'll just have Donnette come in and say, okay, shut your eyes. Here they are. <laughs> so unique uh, Joey Nelson method for uh, opening presents on Christmas morning. Um, I need my, my uh, granddaughter here who, who wrapped her first present um, here recently. And I got a picture of it. And she used, let's just say she used a very liberal dosage of scotch tape. Lots of scotch tape on that package, so maybe that's what I need this morning. A lot of scotch tape and paper. But um, I hope that you're ready for the holiday season, and um, thank you so much for last weekend, and you were here, and um, you're such a blessing. Um, thank you for just being here in the, um, to watch The Chosen with us, the Christmas episode of The Chosen. It was really powerful. Um, and we would love to see that kind of thing happen more and more here, and we're pursuing that. So Matt Gaff and the technological team did a great job with that. And so many of you just serving, ushering, providing um, baked goods and things, just God just really used it. And um, I mentioned to everybody that you could feel free to, to support. It was a free event, but you could uh, just feel free to support the ministry of the chosen and, and upcoming episodes that they're going to produce. And so I uh, just mentioned that before they left. And then I was out there just helping tidy things up and get things ready. And one of the trash cans was kind of overflowing with um, garbage and things. So I just kind of lifted it out and was holding it there with the big trash bag, 30 some gallon trash bag and holding it there while people were leaving. And one guy looked at me and said, man, that is a really big offering plate. I never thought about that. So you gave me an idea. And uh, so we'll just have to go 30-gallon trash bags for offering plates, okay? Now, you've given throughout the year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God is so good. We give not to be blessed because we already have been blessed far more than we ever deserve. And I can say that on good authority because it's Christmas. You think about that. Think about the fact that Jesus became flesh. He became a baby. And whatever pre-incarnate state he had and he was in and he existed, because God is a Trinitarian presence, one what and three who's, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he exists before the incarnation in a pre-incarnate, um, pre-humanity state. And then he becomes a baby. He becomes a human being. Fully God, fully man. And then he lives his life and he dies and he resurrects and he ascends and there's still scars and there's still markings on his human body. And so every indicator indicates to us and, and suggests to us that he became a man for all eternity. There's no, okay, that's done. Got that over with. Let's revert and snap back. Let's roll this thing back to pre-incarnate Jesus. Mm -mm. there's no going back. There's no hit the button and rolling it back. He is the God-man forever. And when you see Christmas that way, 
It's hard not to fall to your knees, as we talked about in teen Sunday school this morning. Fall to your knees and break a vase and offer everything in worship and pour it out to God. Because who, how could we not respond that way? In such an incredible, with such an incredible Savior. So remarkable, so powerful. And we do fall on our knees because it is a holy night. And the thrill of hope, a weary, weary world rejoices. And um, that's what the message of Christmas is. And it's so, it's just, we're so compelled to respond to that message. And so what I'd like us to do here this morning is um, we just kind of laid out this hope in the dark theme a son is given to us last week in Isaiah 9 and 6, actually verses 1 through 7. This week we want to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And what I'd like us to do is just talk through a very familiar Christmas passage. It's got really some great insights built into it. And so we'll just kind of talk our way through it. And then um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about Mary's misfortune, how that in Christmas, everything is set against the backdrop of humiliation, rejection, and misfortune. Oh, there was some initial acceptance, there was some joy, and we're going to see that in our passage, but it didn't last very long. Um, so Christmas is, is, the real, is the reality that it's a dark world that we live in, but that against this dark backdrop, God is up to something. And um, He is... He is working in our lives in such a way, it's almost as if he's working in obscurity uh, to accomplish something great, something wonderful, marvelous. And so we'll, we'll talk through um, Luke 2, 1 through 21, and then um, we'll look a little bit at Mary's misfortune. And then we have to think about another step in this, and that is that we have to look at the messages in our misfortune. There are messages built into the unfortunate, misfortunate things that's happened in your life. Somebody said that all of life, great and small, is a parable by which God speaks to us. The point and the art of life is to get the message. And the question I got this morning is that even though uh, you may have had some misfortunate things that's happened in your life, have you got the message in your misfortune because if you will learn and I will learn to see and read and respond to the messages of our misfortune God does incredible things with that and he does phenomenal things in our lives and he can do phenomenal things in your life and your uh, family and then I if time permits I'll share with you a little uh, story here about Sarah Ward how she certainly got the message in her misfortune. But it's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and we'll just kind of read through this familiar text. Uh, if, we, if you would pull it up on the screen for me. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. It's incredible words of Luke and it's interesting to me that Caesar Augustus, his real name was Octavius, he was renamed by the Roman Senate, Caesar Augustus. He was the first 
Caesar that bore this title Augustus, or it means revered one. In fact, he saw himself as a God. He saw himself as a savior of the world. And he had actually initiated uh, the census to be carried out in a lot of different countries. And now this census was rolling into Israel. And Israel, who at one time, um, you know, their citizens didn't have to be conscripted to the military. And so they were exempt from a lot of these since the census that were happening around the world. But that was no longer. Now Caesar Augustus, the savior of the world, the self-proclaimed rescuer of humanity, is issuing that, no, the people of Israel are going to also be taxed. They're also going to be subject to uh, our taxation and our expectations because we've got to pay our soldiers some way. And we've got to build our own some way. What's really interesting, we talked about it this morning in pre-service meeting, Caesar Augustus. I mean, think about how, you know where the story's going to go, but think about how the tables have been turned. I mean, he was the guy. I mean, he was the man. It, the marbled halls of the Roman Senate, this guy was the ruler of the world. Caesar Augustus, right? All Rome, roads lead to Rome, and he's the most powerful man in the world. And now, he's just a little footnote in human history. Whose birthday are we celebrating this coming week? It's not Caesar. In fact, Mike Weimer said all Caesar got was a salad. <laughs> he's just a salad and some salad dressing. That's all he is. He's a footnote. And how the tables have turned. I mean, this thing here in Luke, the historian, he starts us out in the marbled halls of Rome and Caesar Augustus. And, and then we step down to Quirinius, a local regional leader. And then we step down to Joseph and a free man, but nevertheless pretty poor and poverty stricken. Then we step down to Mary, who's a little teenage girl. And we step down all the way down to this little helpless infant in a mother's womb. See how that steps down? Boom, 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 boom. Just, there's a descent. And at the time that this goes down, that event that happened in Bethlehem of Judea was just a little blurb, a little footnote. But now the story's changed. The footnote's been put to the top. The guy on the top leading the chapter drops all the way down to the footnote. Why? Because God, that, what's the message in our misfortune sometimes? That God does things like this. He does things like this. And uh, he loves to work in our lives in ways that we would not expect against this dark backdrop of Humiliation and rejection and misfortune, God is at work. Well, verse 2, this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Those of you who are biblical studies buffs, you're going to know that uh, there's other census, more census that took place in, uh, in this area. This was the first, Luke says, so... Uh, this is a problem for some scholars who want to date the Quirinius uh, census around uh, 9 to 6 um, A.D. 
and they weren't, aren't aware of the fact that he was already ruling in the area, and he actually had a first census, and this was the first census right around 6 to 4 B.C., uh, just for, for the record. Verse 3, and everyone went to their own town to register. Next verse. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Does this sound to you like long, long ago, long ago in a galaxy far, far away? Is it that kind of a story? No, no, look at the, look at the geographical markers. Look at the, the persons talked about. There's, there's Nazareth, and there's Galilee, and there's Judea, and there's Bethlehem, and there's a David, and there's evidence of a David, and he belonged to the house and the line of David. And so what we have is we don't just have a, fiction, a, a fictional story that Christmas is some imaginative tale that just has happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far, or land far, far away. No, no, this thing is rooted in geography. It's rooted in cultural reliability. It's rooted in the social structure of what we understood at the time. And, and, and in a few verses, we're going to even understand what swaddling clothes mean. All that was consistent with how life was lived in the first century world. This is not a fictional tale. Christmas is rooted in culture and geography and history. And so Joseph, who he goes up from the town of Nazareth, up in elevation, if we pull our map up of the, of the path that they probably took, you can see uh, big picture left, zoomed in picture right. Okay, Nazareth, go, you go south to Bethlehem. Well, when in America, when we say, you know, we go up, usually we have a northern direction. For them, they went south, but they went up because it's higher in elevation. Back to the text. So he goes, he goes up from the town of Nazareth in elevation. He gets up to the town of David. So what, all that to say is he's walking uphill. Uh, Mary, uh, he went there to register with Mary. Verse 5 says, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So Mary is riding side saddle while Joe walks uphill all the way, about 90 miles or so, all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And he went there, Joseph went there to register with Mary. How come Mary's with him? Well, he's not going to leave her behind in Nazareth for all the people to cluck their tongues even more. Um, at, at Mary because, hey, she, she uh, was pregnant. She didn't have a, a husband yet. And that created a lot of stigma for her to deal with in her life in the first century world. Joe wasn't going to leave her there. Joseph knew about the special promises and visions and dreams of this baby boy. So he's not going to miss out. And so he makes sure that Mary is with him and she's pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And so Matthew chapter 1 tells us that, um, that Mary and Joseph lived together. She was pregnant via the Holy Spirit with the, with the Christ child. And Joe and Mary never had a union, a physical union during this time, even though they were together. Next slide. While they were there, I, I don't get the idea that they just get into town and it's like, oh, birth bang, 
it's time to go, Joe. Find us a spot. I don't think it was like that. I think they, while they were there, they got to town. I think they expected that they would probably stay with the relatives of jo- in Joseph's family and perhaps Mary's family. I think they didn't, they underestimated the availability of things. I think that probably all the relatives, you know, the aunts, the uncles, and the cousins, twice removed, are there. They showed up. They're in Bethlehem. There's really very limited lodging because Bethlehem is basically a, a, a one stoplight, a Dairy Queen, and a gas station kind of town. Just a little place at this time. And it was overwhelmed with all these travelers trying to fulfill their obligation to Rome. And so while they were there for some time, it came The time came for the baby to be born. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn, implying there was other children that came after Jesus. But this was her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger. And I'm thinking, hold on, uh, Luke, there's more details. How long was he, right? How much did he weigh? Did he have a raspy cry? Uh, Did he have a little cone head like little babies can have sometimes, right? I have all these questions. You have all these questions, but it wasn't important to Luke. Luke just says she she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in clothes and placed it. KJV has swaddling clothes and placed him in a manger. She wrapped him in clothes. Her mama wasn't present. The midwife wasn't present. The doctor wasn't present. It's just Mary and Joseph. Very lonely place. Kind of misfortunate, isn't it? A lot of misfortune here in the story. But she placed him in a manger, a feed trough. More than likely a stone, little stone feed trough with an indentation at the top. You can hold food for the livestock. Probably padded that with some hay and some cloth. And there they laid the creator of the world in human form. Because there was no guest room available for them. Next slide. And there were shepherds. So we go... We go all the way from Rome. Now we're down in a little village of Bethlehem, all the way down to the birth of a baby. And now this thing telescopes back out. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, near Bethlehem, maybe a mile or two away from where this had gone down. They're keeping watch over their flocks at night. Uh, We could just say they were cowboy camping, right? They just slept under the stars. It was all good. Uh, Shepherds, you know this. All the commentators, all the pastors, all the academics that will tell you what a bad rap the shepherds got because they kind of earned themselves a reputation. And nobody trusted these guys. Um, They would graze their flocks on other people's land. If if they happened to, if they happened to, um, some of the, uh, if the flock multiplied and had little kids born, right? Little little lambs born. um, Sometimes they would take and just sell those and pocket the money on the side. And so they were considered unclean. They never, hardly ever made it to church, hardly ever made it to the temple. And, and even if they did, they wouldn't be allowed in because of, of their reputation. They, they were socially stigmatized as well. And so they're watching over their flocks, probably 
out there smoking their pipe, having a good time, weren't really the church-going type, not really all that concerned about theology. Isn't it amazing when God shows up in somebody's world like that? It wasn't as if they just got through with their morning or their evening devotions and they got through reading their devotional and then God shows up in the sky with angels. No, they're doing their thing. And God shows up. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord, the heavy glory of God, it's a bright shining light. It's against the night sky, against the darkness of this era of time, shone around them. And they were like, man, this is neat. No, that's not what it said. They were terrified. Wow. Next slide. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people today. In other words, the wait is over. The wait is over. In this moment in time, something new is being inaugurated for the entire world. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born. Look at the triple title. And, and, and he's born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, Savior, Messiah, and Lord, Savior. He is the true rescuer, not the guy sitting on the marble throne of Rome. This guy is the true rescuer, the savior of the world. He is Messiah. He's been promised and now he's arrived. He is the Lord. He is master and sovereign. It's what all those three, three term title means. That's the meaning behind them. He is all of these things. It's amazing what has happened today. Today, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in in clothes and lying in a manger. This is how you know there might be other babies wrapped in swaddling clothes, but there's only going to be one. Surely only one will be lying in a manger. Next slide, verse 13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. And, and the heavenly host is a, is a, it's a term, a phrase that would be used to describe armies. And so there's an army of angels, and I don't know how many angels there were. Revelation talks about 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands upon thousands. It's as if they're looking with great anticipation and great interest. They have been waiting all of this time through the millennia of time. And they finally, the today, today it's happening. It's happening. And it's like all of the angelic hosts and heavenly hosts, they have assembled. They're at the porter, portal and they're looking. This is the moment when God became flesh. And we've been waiting for it. We've been anticipating it. We've been prophesying about it. We've been theophanizing about it. And God's showing up in all of these different ways in the Old Testament to emphasize that there's a day coming that will be inaugurated and they're all there. They're not going to miss it. Look at this. Look at this. This is amazing. Father, Son, Spirit, and there He is. Wow. And they're all assembled. We're not missing it. They're there. The host. Heavenly host. And they're praising God. And they're saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace 
to those on whom his favor rests, this army of heavenly hosts, ten thousands times ten thousands and thousands upon thousands of the heavenly hosts, they have come. They're described in military, army, phrasing, and verbiage. But ironically, they've not come to declare war. What's it say? They have come to declare Rob Bell does a talk where he says, he titles the talk, and Rob Bell's way out there, but I like this talk. The gods aren't angry anymore. The gods aren't angry anymore. That something's happened. Something's been inaugurated in the deific theological realms. God. The wrath of God has been met and satisfied fully and will be in the form of this little baby boy. Phenomenal. Oh, I love Christmas. So they're glorying to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace, no declaration of war. It is peace to those on whom his favor rests. His favor rests on you this morning in Jesus. Next slide. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go back to smoking our pipes, boys. That's not what it says, is it? Let's go to Bethlehem. Get up. Let's go. Let's, let's just, we're going to violate the protocol of our vocation. You never leave the sheep. They left the sheep. Maybe they left the younger. You know, my... My luck, you know, I'd have been the new shepherd, you know, like the newest guy, no seniority. They would have made me stay with the sheep. I know that's what would have happened. Some young dude with no seniority had to stay with the sheep. And they get up and they go to Bethlehem and they see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. We got to see this thing. I like how they word that. This thing God is doing. It's, it's a baby, but there's so much more tied up in this baby. God is inaugurating something today. And the angels show up to see it. It's like, what is this? This is, this is a cookie. Uh, this is not a cookie cutter thing. This is paradigm shattering. This is earth quaking. This is, this is sky splitting. This is womb opening. This is, this is a footnote altering mo a point in human history. God is showing up. baby who never ceased to be God he set aside for his earthly sojourn the independent use of his deific attributes while never ceasing to be God play that through your mind one more time because that is Christmas So they hurried off, verse 16, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger, just like they said. Next slide. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. 
And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Just amazing. You know, wouldn't we love to have an angelic host, tens of thousands in the sky, appear to us? I mean, yeah, we got Christmas lights on our tree and in our windows and stuff. But can you imagine seeing these lights like this and just the impact of, um, of, a, of a heavenly assembly like this and, the, and the hearing the words and hearing the promise and getting to visually see this? It's incredible, and we would all like it that way, but most of the time, we just get shepherds. You, get to have to, you have to kind of look at this guy who gets to tell you. Well, Joey, I, I mean, I appreciate you and everything, but I'd rather see angels. I'm sorry. This is the way God sets it up. He lets shepherds see it, and then they get to go tell everybody else. Everybody else wants choirs and angels. All they get is just some scraggly-looking shepherd missing a few teeth. Smells like his hokum pipe. Okay? All that gets a shepherd. Sometimes we want to, we want to, we want to minimize the message because we don't get, like, we're not sure what these guys are looking like. We don't know where they're from. We don't know what they're about, right? How, how, how can he tell me? How can she tell me? We get focused on the shepherds, but they're still bearing the message. Don't get focused on the messenger and lose the message. Don't get focused on the misfortune and lose the message. Because God's got a message in this. Well, but Mary, almost done through the text. Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So two verbs. She treasured up. She memorized, we could say. She memorized all the events, the near, uh, the near, um, just destruction of her betrothal, um, the visions, the dreams, um, she, 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 uh, the, the angelic uh, presentations, and, and, and all of these things. She treasured up. She memorized all of these things, and she pondered them. She, she, she took them like pieces, and she put, together, put them together like a puzzle in her mind. And I, I, I take it she never stopped doing this. And, and Dr. Luke, who wrote this um, book, uh, Luke's gospel tells us, and more than likely, Mary was a source. And if you watched the Chosen Messenger uh, Christmas presentation last week, you'll know that Dr. Luke um, used Mary, the mother of Jesus, as one of his primary sources in the material. And this is why they would put that that way and depict it that way. She, how would you know, if you weren't the writer of this, how would you know that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart? How would you know that unless you talked to Mary? There's only one way you're going to know that. Luke and Mary talked. And Luke gives to us a play-by-play from Mary's own mouth of what happened on that first Christmas night. Go to the next slide. The shepherds returned. They're glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, you know, interesting, uh, I learned this week that the eighth day of life, the human body will clot blood better at that day than any other day in the life of a newborn. I don't think they knew that, but God knows what he's doing. It just takes us a while to catch up sometimes. On the eighth day, when he was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus. 
the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how it all went down in Bethlehem about 2,000 some years ago. And the angel said, today, what's he mean? The wait's over. A A transition has come. The gods aren't angry anymore. You're now in a status of at peace with God. You are reconciled to God. Hark, the herald angels sing. God and sinners, first line of the song. God and sinners reconciled. Wow. We're not enemies anymore. We're on the same team. And Jesus has bridged the gap. He's closed the gap. He's tended to the gap between us and God. You know, when I look at this story, I think about, like I said earlier, the messages of of misfortune in the story and uh, just kind of wrote down and different ones that's helped me see these insights this week, but how God's timing in Mary's life seems so far off. And I don't know if you've ever had moments in your life where, you know, you think to yourself, this is not the right time for this to be happening in my life. This is not the right time for this to happen. And, and I'm thinking Mary could have easily made that conclusion in so many ways throughout the story. You know, her marriage was not yet consummated. God, it's not the right time to be pregnant. And we look in Luke chapter 2, verse 5. Just pull that up. Luke 2, verse 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. It's Luke's way of saying they were together living as a couple, but there was no physical union. He was virgin born, just like Matthew and the the prophets even, just like they recorded and and showed to us, this was a very special baby conceived of the spirit. And so her marriage was not yet consummated. And so she could bring that to the table and say, God, this is not the right time. I'm not married yet. The birth of her child is going to be in occupied territory. God, this is not the right time. We're invaded by the Romans. They're hostile. People might try to take this baby boy's life. If we look in chapter 2, verse 1, you're going to see that this Caesar salad guy, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, he is ruling over the Roman Empire, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. He's ruling over this Roman Empire. He leads the charge on a hostile people taking over the little nation, the little hamlet by comparison of Israel. And sure enough, we read in Matthew's gospel, King Herod did try to take his life, the life of that baby boy. Her marriage wasn't consummated yet. Not the right time to be pregnant. The birth of her child is going to be in occupied territory. It's not the right place and time to be born, right? Third, the census has totally disrupted their plans. They got a baby coming and now they got to pack their bags, get secure the services of a donkey, put her side saddle on it. She's full, almost full term. There's the bump. And the jolting of every step that the donkey was taking on that 90-mile trip. God, it's not the right time to take a long trip. 
It's not the right time. The census is disrupting all of our plans. I've, do- I've, I've doctored here in Nazareth. I know my midwives in Nazareth. Yeah, there's a little bit of stigma, but I do have a few friends, and, and, and I don't want to have to leave them. This is not the right time to go 90 miles on a donkey's back. It's not the right time. Bethlehem might be their ancestral connection, as the passage shows to us really well. But there's no network there. There's no support system. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, verse 7 tells us that she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths. She did the wrapping. Just her and Joseph. She's, she's alone. There's nobody there to tend to her and to help her. And, and, and so her marriage is not consummated yet. It's not the right time to be pregnant. It's the birth of her child that's going to be born in occupied territory. There's a census that's totally disrupted their plan. Uh, Bethlehem, yeah, there's some ancestral connection, but there's no support system. And finally, and it's pretty obvious, there's no adequate housing. This, it's inadequate a manger had to double as a crib. Luke chapter 2, verse 7. She placed him in a manger. There's no room. There's no place for privacy outside of a, of a, stable, manger, a stable cave. Justin Martyr, um, who wrote 80 to 90 years, church father, wrote 80 to 90 years after Jesus, the Jesus event. 80 to 90 years. He said Jesus was born in a cave. And it's very typical. There's stable caves. You'd have a house round back. You'd have an entryway to the cave. Inside, you'd have steps down. And so he, was, and he said at that time, 80 to 90 years after the birth event, after the life of Jesus, people in Bethlehem still could take the other people that would come. They would take and do tours and show them where he could be found, where it, where it went down, where it happened. It was like a stable cave that doubled as a, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, a little barn where you kept your animals down below and they were kind of a part of your house establishment. There's inadequate housing and the, and the king of the universe, the true king of the world, the sovereign, is laid there in a stone manger. I'm sure this first Christmas that Mary could sit at the table and tell you it just wasn't the right time, Pastor Joey. It wasn't the right time. Everything was off. And there's so much misfortune that serves as a backdrop of this incredible moment. And I think we all can relate. You know, we've all had these things that's come into our lives and we said to ourselves, it's not the right time for this. I don't understand why this is coming into my life at this time. I don't understand it. It seems so wrong-headed and upside down and black and white and white is black. It's just not the right time. Some of you, when you came to church today, you said that this week. This is not the right time for this. Something happened this week. Not the right time. God is orchestrating events in lives where we, it's just we think it's not the right time. 
And I want to get the message in my misfortune. And what we see in Christmas is that, yeah, it may not be the right time, but today, someone is born to you, the angel said. Today, yeah, mistimed pregnancies and mistimed trips and poor accommodations and inadequate housing and, and, and bills that show up unexpectedly and a doctor's diagnosis that comes and, and just hits us blindside and, and these are all ill-timed, it's not the right time experiences in life and yet we go back to what the angel says, today is the day, Savior, Messiah, Lord, the message in your misfortune is that somehow, maybe, if you look Look, and you stay at it, and you keep your heart open, that maybe underneath the muck and the mud and the stench and the pungency of the stable, there you'll find a baby. Maybe. And when you find him, we could even say when he finds you, then you realize there's a message in your misfortune. That there's a sovereign God who rules not on the marbled colonnades of Rome. But he's this little baby boy who accomplished everything that we needed accomplished. He now rules and reigns in the misfortunate events of your life. And he invites you to trust him as Savior because he's the true rescuer. He invites you to trust him as Messiah because he's the promised one many fulfilled prophecies he's finally here and he invites you to trust him as lord just like the angel announces because he is master and sovereign the time yeah there are ill-timed events in your life but the time is always right to find that baby boy messages in your misfortune, hope in the dark. You know, um, it's interesting. You got this young teenager. She's having to bear the responsibility of pregnancy. And there's a big Roman Empire that forces this young, poverty-stricken couple to make a trip they don't want to make. You've got Jesus He's kind of shut out in the very beginning. There's the manger. I mean, all the moms, you talk to all the moms, they're not going to want their newborn born in the, in the likes of a manger. They want sterile environment. They want everybody to be careful, wear gloves, wear masks, whatever it takes to get this newborn in the world and not be contaminated by unnecessary viruses and germs. That's typically how you want to approach things. But here he is. He's in a manger. He's out in the cold, as it were. There's no room. So much misfortune. Jesus is immersed in misfortune. And so one of the main themes of every, nearly every Christmas passage we read in the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, Jesus was not born in a comfortable home. He was born in a feed trough a manger. He was not born into middle class wealthy family. He was born into a poor family. And we know this by what they had to sacrifice after his circumcision. If you read on in the, te in the text there in Luke. He was surrounded by shepherds. He was not surrounded by heads of state. He wasn't given 
the guest room in the governor's mansion or the mayor of Bethlehem's guest room. He, he, was, he was surrounded by people who were the, at the very bottom of the social totem pole, born to a pregnant, unwed teenage peasant girl who, because she was pregnant at this season of her life, would have bore that stigma throughout her life. Is there a message in our misfortune? Is there a message in your misfortune? As you think about the misfortunate things that you've had to endure this 2021 year, 2020, 19, all the way back, and just take it back. Does God have a message for you in your misfortune? You know, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts, and you know, I... Um, I probably take issue with his political stances, even though they're not supposed to be political. I think sometimes those Supreme Court justices make decisions based on culture and the pressure that's applied. And we certainly need to pray for them because they'll be making decisions, probably one of the biggest decisions to happen in a generation. And that is how life is defined in the womb and how a person in the womb, the baby in the womb, do they have rights? Do they have a right to life? Will somebody be a voice for them? And so this is a big issue that's going to be decided. And, we, and certainly someone said we need to pray for our Supreme Court justices because once they make decisions, it's not going to be revealed for several months. And that influences happen, they can always change their mind about the ruling. And so we definitely need to pray for them. But I agree with John Roberts when he gave a commencement address to a bunch of middle school students to a younger person in his family, graduating middle school, and he, he was invited in to give a, a commencement address. And he starts this address, and he says, you know, a couple times each year, colleges and high schools, middle schools, there's commencement speakers, and they come in, and their messages are always the same. Uh, they'll say that, you know, today is a great day. It's a beginning, not an end. You should look forward. He says, today, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to take a different approach for your graduation commencement speech. He says, uh, from time to time, in years to come, he says, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. You know, I think I, I would reiterate that to you. That I hope, not that you get all that you want under your tree. Oh, I hope you get some presents. If you want a basketball, I hope you get it. Video game, I hope you get it. Barbie doll, I hope you get it. Are those even a thing anymore? I don't know. I haven't seen them for years. A Tonka truck, Legos, connective magnetic thingies that we got for Eliza. I hope, I hope you get it. I hope you get everything that you hope for. But there's something else I hope you get. I hope at some point in your life you're treated unfairly because then you'll know the value of justice. Shepherds treated unfairly and God gave them a front row seat and they always sat in nosebleeds. 
Always. If they were even allowed into the Colosseum. But not on this night. Well, man, I deserve, I, I'm, I did, I've lived this great life and I have helped the community in so many ways. God should have come to me and announced it. I should have been the first to know. She said, upside down. And I hope every one of you, at some point in your life, will be treated unfairly so you'll know and value the principle and the value of justice. And you'll fight for those who've been treated unfairly. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Someone you really counted on, they never came through. In fact, they stabbed you in the back. I love you and I care for you, but I hope in a measure that there's something like that that happens in your life because you will understand the importance of loyalty. You know, King Herod said, hey, where's he at? I want to go worship him too. And then he turned right around and was going to have, have him executed. When you have King Herod's of your life, your friends, show you disloyalty or family member or show you disrespect, and you suffer betrayal, you're going to learn something about loyalty and you'll never forget it. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time. So you don't take your friends for granted. Mary wrapped him in clothes alone. Do you think she understood the value of a midwife? The presence of a family member after baby Jesus was born? I hope you're lonely sometime. Because then you won't, you won't take your friends for granted and your family for granted. I hope sometime you're far, far from home. And you can't find a place to stay. No room. So when you finally come home and see that mama who treasures things in her heart, you'll know what mom and home is. I hope you know that. I had to spend the night one not, not that long ago in a single cab Silverado 2014 pickup. Some rest stop in some state I do not remember. I was this way and this way and this way and this way all night long. It's like, Joey, this is a horrible way to live. I feel like a nomad. I'm homeless, right? It's just a little piece of what a lot of people feel, especially this time of year. I hope sometime you're so stinking lonely and so homesick because when you pull that Silverado in the parking lot in the driveway and you walk in that house, you're going to hug a little tighter. You're going to smile a little bigger. That pumpkin pie is going to taste a whole lot better because you you fought it in the front seat of a Silverado in some state you do not remember because you still are kind of groggy from it.
I hope you're lonely sometimes. I hope you're treated unfairly. I hope you, I hope you get betrayed because you'll learn loyalty. You'll get a sense of justice. You'll never take your friends for granted again. I, I, and you know what? I wish from time to time that you will be conscious of the role of chance in your life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and your failure is not completely deserved either. I hope sometime you get a stroke of bad luck so you can realize that, yeah, there's a king called Caesar Augustus who thinks he runs the world. He thinks he can just make this edict and make these little teenage this little teenage, poor teenage couple make a trip in the late term of pregnancy for 90 miles. He thinks he can just lift his finger and the world's got to line up and march. Right? I hope sometime you feel like you're just a little cog in the wheel. I hope you feel like a pawn on the chessboard of life. Why? You'll learn something about the sovereignty of God. You'll realize, yeah, there's a world full of free will human decisions, but God is sovereign. And if he wants to tap a, 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 a Roman Caesar Augustus on the shoulder and say, hey, let's include them in the census. Just so the Mary and Joseph can get to Bethlehem and Micah 5.2 says that's exactly where he's going to be born. God taps taps government officials on the shoulder and he does that stuff because he's doing something over here there's a message in his misfortune there's a message in your misfortune and I hope sometime you lose I hope you get shellacked And I hope your opponent gloats over your failure. Because you will never, ever forget the lesson of sportsmanship in that moment. You'll be a phenomenal teammate when the guy just tomahawk dunks, dunks on top of your head wags his tongue, shrugs those shoulders, leaps and, and, you know, swaggers down the court. And then they beat you at the buzzer and they gloat about it on Facebook. I hope that happens because you'll be an incredible teammate someday. And I hope sometime you're ignored. Because then you'll really listen to others. And you're a... I hope sometime you have just enough pain to learn compassion. Because then you'll hold babies just a little closer. And when, those, when you go to funerals, like some people are going to go to a funeral Monday and Tuesday this week, 53 years old, February 9th, Mr. Jones.
pulled a tractor out of a ditch. Two seconds. Done. Eternity's his home. And when you walk through that, you never look at anybody who's gone through loss again the same. You'll have compassion. You'll hurt with those who hurt. You know, Roberts concludes, whether I wish these things are true or not, they're going to happen, and whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortune. Messages in your misfortune. So here, at the beginning of the very first Christmas, we see the pattern. He's put in a a rough feed trough, but later, he'll be nailed to a rough cross. Here, He's rejected by an innkeeper, we think so. Uh, at least there was no one willing, up, willing to give up their bed for a 14-year-old pregnant teenager. So they're rejected by some. But later, almost the whole population will yell, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him in that Jerusalem pandemic of hatred and bias. Here, first Christmas, he's wrapped in old cloths. But then he'll be stripped naked and his last possession, his garment, will be sold and he'll be killed. Here, as it were, he's rejected by the world But on the cross, he's even rejected by his father. His father. He gets what we deserve. Jesus Christ was rejected so you and I could be accepted. There was no room for him so you and I can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now what does that mean? It means that there is hope in the dark. That there's messages in our misfortune. We believe in him. And there is hope. And there is real light in the darkness. And that's why. The angel said. Today. The wait is over. He has come. So you and I. Can have hope in Hope in the dark. Messages in our misfortune. There is no greater gift that I could offer to you at this Christmas to be under your tree is that you get the message of your misfortune. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this day.
Thank you so much for this incredible gathering. We've got some online, and I just pray right now they've gone through some very misfortunate things. I just pray your hand in their life that you would extend out across the miles. We just extend a hand to them in prayer. Pray, Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You lift them out of the misfortune and into this insight, this new level of insight that you might just show up in their life in some uncanny, unpredictable way. Would you do that for them? And Father, I pray for those here in our building. They're such a good group. They're listening so well. Somehow I sense the power of the Spirit in this moment because I know they're just like Mary. They're pondering. They're trying to put the pieces of their misfortune together. Right now, I can just see it. They're, they're crunching this. They're thinking of this. They're processing this. What is the message God is trying to get through to me in my misfortune? And this morning, you've sent me, just a shepherd, to share with them today, is born to you a Savior. The wait's over. The insight has has now come. We know why we're here. We know why they died. And we know why this happened. And we know why that betrayal. And we know why we lost that battle and got gloated over. And now we know, Father, we know why that friend betrayed God, we understand it. It's vivid. It's clear. It's extraordinary insight in this moment. Why? Because now we're ready for this baby boy. Now we're ready for this little boy from Bethlehem. Now we're ready. And so, Father, you touch each of us, soften our hearts shine bright through this message in this season and transform us as only you can do. In the strong name of Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. You know, I got up earlier this week and I had a stiff neck. I was like this. I thought I was going to have to preach like this today. Lord touched it. You don't want the stiff neck, okay? Don't want the stiff neck. It's not fun. Let's not be stiff necks. Soften our hearts. Let Jesus touch it. Will you stand with me? There's cookies out there. Mike Weimer let you know that. We don't want cookies when this thing is done today. Everybody take you at least one, take it home with you, okay? Blessings. Have a great day. Merry Christmas.